Exit for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more podcasts about movies, nostalgia, and pop culture, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Hey everybody, and welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at the Uncanny X-Men franchise, starting with Giant Size X-Men number one, or at least we were supposed to, and that's what this episode is all about. I'm Nico. And I'm Jonah. And the two of us are here to talk a little bit about the show so far. It's the beginning of a new year, and we've gotten eight episodes in to X's for Podcast. Jonah, when we started this thing, it was just you and I having fun, taking a look at some comics. You wanted to know more about Nightcrawler, and I was in the mood to reread the X-Men. Tell me, eight episodes in and not that far into X-Men, how are you feeling about our adventure through Marvel? You know what? I'm enjoying this a lot more than I originally thought I would be. I'm enjoying these new characters added. I'm starting to really enjoy these stories and how they're crafted. I'm enjoying the characterization and the problems that these characters are facing. I'm really starting to love it and enjoy it. And that's what this hall is about. These books are meant to be enjoyed, they're meant to be fun, and we should be having a good time reading them. Which is why it sucks that a lot of them are pretty rough. One of the things that we decided along the way was that we wanted to have a full scope of the universe that these books were taking place in. So we added in the X-Men's other appearances, as well as appearances of characters who either had been X-Men or would ultimately return to the team's roster in the near future. To that end, we've also been reading The Champions along with Kyle, as well as Captain Britain Weekly from the UK Marvel line with Kevo on those episodes to be prepared for Excalibur. This has maybe made the process a little bit slower, as well as the other titles that the X-Men appear in. Now, I know we've discussed it a little bit before, but whether or not we felt that the first few issues of Uncanny X-Men were quite as strong as they would become, it's pretty clear to see when the X-Men appear in another title, it's not that great. No, a lot of times the X-Men are overshadowed by the people that they're starring with, and it's a little unfortunate, but you kind of also get it. Oftentimes, from what we've seen in these episodes, the X-Men team up with Spider-Man, and we learn so much more about Spider-Man in these Marvel team-ups than we do with any of the X-Men he appears with. I 100% agree with that. One of the things we've decided about Marvel team-up is that it was basically to facilitate editorial, helping advance the sales of other titles. Spider-Man was already a home run out of the park every month, so they used Spider-Man to help readers discover characters they might not have been familiar with. That often leaves those characters that are guest starring in these issues being treated pretty second string. It's pretty rough. A good podcast. We're a little ahead of schedule, so we've read a few more Marvel team-ups than have been released. And unfortunately, the vibe we are discussing is not going anywhere anytime soon. It's not just Marvel team-up, though, that poses a problem. Jonah, I don't know if you remember, but in our first episode, when we covered Uncanny X-Men numbers 94 through 100, as well as Giant Size number 1 and Giant Size Fantastic 4 number 4, well, that, Giant Size Fantastic 4 number 4, I'm a huge Madrox fan, but oh man, when they lowered Xavier in a wheelchair via tractor beam, I just didn't even, I just, what do you, Jonah, talk to me. We've been looking at the X-Men from all sorts of angles. How was it to see mutants, not specifically the X-Men, but mutants, through the lens of another Marvel title at the time? Oh boy, oh, it's really rough and tough, and it's really like a lot of these superheroes who weren't born as them as mutants don't know how to handle a mutant. They really just look at them like, wow, you're a monstrosity, you need to die, even if you're just literally asking for help. 
it's absurd, but it also makes sense and it drives home one of the central themes that I know X-Men will get to, which is how the human population looks looks at and treats mutants. 100%. We're not quite at hated and feared the way they are going to be hated and feared. At this point, they're still kind of the strangest teens of all time. They're definitely out of being teenagers. And they're just not quite the X-Men yet. We are getting very close to those stories with the introduction of John Byrne in our upcoming episode. But to take another look back at some of the things we've covered, we covered the majority of the Dave Cockrum run. Dave Cockrum, whose pencils just 100% gave these characters life, such a personality, such an interesting vantage point. Now, there's something really exciting I'm... I want to share with Jonah that I don't believe I've had a chance to share with him. That page turning you hear in the background is me thumbing through my giant-sized X-Men omnibus. I don't know if Jonah's ever had a chance to see this, but Dave Cockrum had originally created these characters, the giant-sized X-Men, for a DC project called The Outsiders. Essentially, he was looking to use Nightcrawler in any shape, way, or form, as he loved the design. A number of other characters, like Storm, was pulled together from several other designs. She was originally going to be kind of Black Cat-ish. The only thing that made Thunderbird's final costume from his original design was his logo. However, Jean, uh, <laughs> Jean's costume originally was a little bit, uh, Aurora's costume and it looks she looks like crazy white Amazon lady and it doesn't work for me but yeah I don't know if you ever knew that before but Cockrum was the driving force behind getting these designs out there and it seems like Dave Cockrum was gonna get these designs made no matter what yeah it's a little bit interesting to see these original designs of the characters before they were transformed into what we uh, know today Uh, just looking at them I'm really glad that where they ended up, that's kind of the only statement that really needs to be said about this. Wow, Jean's costume is bad. And there's this one tiny one where she basically looks like the Iron Fist. I don't even know how to make sense of some of these designs. But Dave Cockrum's mark on the X-Men will never go away. Dave Cockrum was responsible for bringing us the Phoenix along with Chris Claremont. And I guess that's as good a time as any to mention Chris Claremont. Chris Claremont, the driving force behind the X-Men for something like 15 years, and then ultimately to come back for another 12. The man is so inextricably linked with the X-Men in a way that you just can't pull him out. Although our first tales were actually by Len Wein, who would later become editor-in-chief of Marvel. We have collectively decided the Len Wein issues, which were Giant Size X-Men number one, Giant Size Fantastic Four number four, Uncanny 94 and 95, as well as Amazing Spider-Man 161-162, which was supposed to star Spider-Man and Nightcrawler, but ultimately became a Punisher issue in which J. Jonah Jameson decided he would become a domestic terrorist. Those were the hardest to read. Jonah, have there been writing themes or writers or artists? Have there been things, connections you've seen in the titles where you're like, oh, I know I like this or uh, not so crazy about that? Um, I would say so. It's really noticeable the shift when Chris Claremont gets to stand on his feet by himself. You see the stories. You see these characters start to get life uh, breathed into them. And it's really it was refreshing because... You, it kind of makes me wonder, you know, if Chris Claremont didn't take over the X-Men and Len Wein didn't become editor-in-chief and if maybe he stayed on X-Men, would it even be as successful as it is today? 
I don't think so. Not to discredit any of the work that Len Wein has done, but his stories almost pale in comparison to where Chris Claremont takes them. And almost instantly, one of the things we talk about in the first episode is how from the moment 98 starts, the arc that gives us the Phoenix, it is a jarring roller coaster from beginning to end. We get this massive space exploration. It's this growing idea. Claremont steers the X-Men in a direction they will certainly never recover from, and we wouldn't want them to. However, Chris Claremont is not without his folly. Claremont is the chief architect on classic X-Men. For those who don't know, X-Men was incredibly popular in a time in which reprint magazines were how people digested older titles. There were no trades per se, there were reprint magazines or reprint issues. X-Men was reprinted in order to capitalize on its popularity with new pages and updated sequences so that things jibed a little bit better with canon now as opposed to where they started. I'd never gotten a chance to read classic X-Men before because my father, I'm very lucky, gave me Uncanny X-Men 94 to roughly issue 300, so I had the original issues of all of these. When I found out about classic X-Men, I promised myself I'd read it one day. Doing this project with Jonah gave me the ultimate opportunity to delve into these books. I love getting to read these with Jonah. I hate having to read these for you guys. These suck. Classic X-Men sucks. I'm not happy. The art's gorgeous. The art is always gorgeous. The art is incredibly gorgeous. I hate this book. Yeah, my only favorite thing about classic X-Men are the pinups you get at the end of the issues because it's really beautiful art to look at. These stories aren't good. They oftentimes don't have anything to do with what's going on in the main narrative that they are paired with. They're supplemental stories that you can skip altogether. They don't add new nuances to these characters that we're falling in love with. They don't add anything new. And oftentimes these classic issues will introduce characters and concepts way earlier than they are in canon when they're released. And it's you're going to spoil new readers for so many things. Like there's one classic issue that's, that talks about Emma Frost and the Hellfire Club. And that's nowhere mentioned. I don't even know when it's going to be mentioned. Not for far off in the future. Oh, I'm with you completely on that. I've had a number of the things introduced significantly earlier than they should be very jarring. For instance, Rain, Moyer McTaggart's charge, who would later go on to become a member of the New Mutants. Her introduction, 70 issues too early, kind of blew my mind. I agree specifically with Jonah on the Hellfire Club story. I enjoy the backup, but the backup seems to only be there because of additional pages inserted for the classic story. I don't blame them for trying to make the best product they could and the most money they could, but unfortunately, these classics do not support the story the way I believe they were hoping they would in retrospect. X-Men just continued to get better. Unfortunately, we took a break from the X-Men, Jonah sat out an episode, and me and my buddy Kyle covered the Champions. The Champions is... God, I, I mean, I don't listen to it if I can help it, but Jonah, I imagine you've heard bits here and there. It sounds as bad as it is, right? I'm not losing my mind. It's that bad. No, and I'm surprised you haven't lost your mind while reading them. These are terrible plots and such wastes of characters like wow like wow uh these characters don't seem to have any connection to each other emotionally it mostly seems to be angel complaining that he's got to relaunch the team again and then iceman throwing a temper tantrum ghost rider feeling ostracized for no reason black widow and hercules just kind of keep pairing off and have nothing to do i don't understand this title and then they're shoehorning in new characters like Darkstar. 
the issues, change writers left and right. Chris Claremont did a fill-in that made no sense in which, like a business guy, mind-controlled Hercules. I just can't. It is not my favorite book, which is probably why we inserted another episode in its place. In place of doing the second Champions episode, Jonah joined Kyle and I to talk a little bit about the Beast, since the Beast will ultimately be joining the thread of characters in Champions in their next title, The Defenders. Jonah, you joined us for that episode. Tell me a little bit. Was it fun getting to see the Beast, who's like basically the only X-Men you've barely read at this point? Um, yeah. You know, we know where Iceman and uh, Angel ran off to. Havoc and Polaris are still in X-Men, even though they're not part of the team. Jean is back again, but Beast is someone that we didn't really know what was happening to if you're not reading everything supplemental and you're only reading the Uncanny runs. It was really interesting to see where they took the story of Beast becoming what he is known today as this big, blue, furry, monstrous, uh, mutant-looking mutant. You know, it, it was really nice to see that. But it, again, just drives the point of supplemental stuff like this. They don't really know how to write because, and this is a common theme in Marvel, they have such weird plots that are just really bad. A computer commits suicide because he discovers the feeling of pain. Jonah, you're touching on a lot of really great hallmarks. While I also enjoyed getting to see the Beast come into his own It was, in many ways, a lot of filler material. We ultimately said that we felt that that something like 80 pages of story could have been boiled down to a stronger 30. The threads don't even get finished out before the arc gets completely dropped. And while we're on the subject of computers that commit suicide, that seemed to be a big thing for Marvel in the 70s, and that brings us on over to Captain Britain. Captain Britain has been a title that I've covered with Kevo, my amazing husband and Jonah's awesome boyfriend. And Captain Britain... I love Captain Britain. I love Captain Britain with all my heart. I love Excalibur. It's one of my favorite titles. He's one of my favorite heroes. Early Captain Britain is nonsense. It is remedial nonsense. It is like the nonsense that other nonsense is like, dude, can I help teach you how to be like a thing? Come here. Come here. Come here. You're bad nonsense. Jonah. 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 Oh my God. Is Captain Britain is as dumb as I think it is, right? If the Champions is as bad as I think it is, Captain Britain sounds as dumb as I think it does, right? Yes. I read a little bit of Captain Britain, not the beginning of it, of where uh, Kevo and Nico cover, but just listening to the episode and listening to them talk about it, it's not good. It is, oh my God, I'm so, it makes me so happy that eventually Captain Britain becomes something wonderful. Because they do not do this character justice in the beginning at all. It is absolutely absurd what they think they can get away with for a plot. Someone actually okayed these issues. That is a mistake. And what's even worse is in some cases, those issues served as landmark points for the characters. Captain America came on over to the UK side and did... 12 issues with Captain Britain, in which he was used horribly, had just about no personality. Nick Fury was made to look like an idiot. Every other page was LMDs. We just kept thinking that this issue could have been skipped because the end of it is so close to the end of the previous issue. All in all, Captain Britain has not been the most fulfilling experience. And... That's been a little disappointing that we've had two titles that we felt have been kind of like an anchor on the experience. However, Uncanny X-Men 101 to 108 was pretty much beginning to end 
excellence, with one minor exception, and that is, of course, 106's fill-in. But 101 to 103 gave us the Cassidy Keep arc and gave us Jean's emerging as the Phoenix. Jean becoming the Phoenix is one of the most iconic, recognizable, and defining moments in Marvel Comics history. Jonah, it was so thrilling to get to read that with you, because in terms of the greater canon of Marvel, I know you've read a bunch of more modern comics, but for older comics, that must have been like the 12th older comic you'd ever read of the X-Men. How was getting to see Jean turn into the Phoenix, the iconic version of the character? It was really great and interesting to see one of Marvel's powerhouses get their origins. You know, we talked about a little bit when we were talking about Beast, how it's nice to see that change to what they are known as today. It's really great to see Jean become the Phoenix. It was written so well and so interesting, and it's so amazing to look at. And it's something beautiful to read. And it's also something, I want to make a note of something that Marvel, what made Marvel great is their realism with their characters and how relatable they are when they talk about their struggles. I think Jean dealing with becoming the Phoenix really solidified her as an amazing character because she's sitting in a hospital bed talking with her best friend saying, how would you feel if you came back from the dead? She really doesn't know how to process this. And that's how so anyone would feel. How would you feel if you became this great cosmic entity and you were given so much power, and but you were literally dead it's just amazing i can't disagree with you at all and i love something you said we watched her become this powerhouse i agree as a huge gene gray fan i'm going to sell myself out until i was like 20 years old every screen name i ever had had phoenix or gray in it because i'm just so into this character at least i was uncomfortably into this character growing up and when we read these marvel team-ups from before the uncanny era gene is treated like the girl She has no personality. In fact, that's been one of my favorite things we've discussed on this show. We've discussed the way these comics have mistreated women and minorities in this era. Jean has a number of moments where she is meat to these men, not the least of which is when Spider-Man tries to make out with her to prove a point to Warren and Scott, who are both trying to big dick brag, and let's face it, Spider-Man, between the three of them, would have the biggest. And that's not going to work for us in this modern day and age. While the trope still appears in books like Daredevil by Mark Waid, it's not an acceptable trope. Also, and that's at least a trope we can process. The weirder one, the one that's been so strange, is... It seems like every writer believes that Storm must be naked to be happy, and it's really deeply racist. It's so horribly problematic. It's so great that we have such a strong black woman as a character, but you're unraveling all this good work you're doing by having her, by having her feel like she needs to constantly be naked. And I get it. Storm is literally beautiful, but she does not need to be taking her clothes off every single second. Don't get me wrong. I like it when Colossus does it. I like it when Wolverine does it. But I feel a specific way about the way they handle male nudity in the X-Men versus female nudity. There is an interesting dichotomy about the way they'll present these characters. All of the characters have a bathing suit sequence in the classic X-Men Night of the Demon issue, but the men are still treated a little bit less like ogle their parts 
it certainly is a sexual play on it. And I can't take that away from Claremont. Chris Claremont has long been very good to his gay male fans and female fans. There's a number of pages he personally requested be drawn into the books as fan service to his fans who appreciate the male physique as well. That makes him a really cool guy. I appreciate his work. He's also never shied away from having queer characters. And in a very early time, he had very queer characters very positively. When we get to Storm and Yukio, you will hear me talk about how they are the strongest romantic relationship Storm has in the comics for about 10 years. So we're in for some amazing treats in the near future. However, we did have one last round of Dear God Why. We covered an unreal amount of Marvel team-up adventures that took place in the early 70s in the space between Uncanny's initial cancellation at issue 66 and its resuming new material at issue 94. These appearances did nothing to help the story, did not clarify the characters in any way, and kind of bummed me out. Especially because they were where we decided we had a great distaste for the Marvel team-up format. I know that a number of the issues that I am discussing have not been released yet, but do believe they will be the next handful of episodes that come out. Without getting too spoilery, Jonah, talk to me a little bit about how we feel about the Marvel team-up format of two good guys meet, don't recognize each other, punch each other unconscious, and then team up against a bad guy for two pages. We talk about how bad and how much we dislike these issues, but part of it is it's because it feels like they don't know how to have these characters interact organically and naturally. It's so like all these Marvel characters, when they meet someone they don't know and could possibly be perceived as a threat, they have to fight them instead of trying to come to a more peaceful resolution to these issues. It's all punchy-punchy, and then, oh, wait, there's actually a greater evil between us. We're actually both good guys. It's not good. I don't like them. And, again, it's not any way that helps these characters in a good light. Though I will say, the Iceman one did make me considerably like him more because he wasn't noticeably a dick in it. Yeah, it was bizarre that he wasn't noticeably a dick in it. Iceman has not been the most likable character in these flashback issues. In fact, a number of characters who had been likable were rendered unlikable by going back to their earlier adventures. Jonah, it has been such a fun experience doing this walk through the X-Men with you. And now let's look back at what we've already covered. I want to talk a little bit about the ways we've been reading this material, though. Not everybody is lucky enough to have an incredibly extensive back-issue collection handed to them at a young age, so I know that not everybody has access to a number of the things we're going to be covering. To that end, there are a few ways you can get your hands on these pretty easily. Number one, Marvel Digital Unlimited. Now, this is not a sales pitch by any means because the app can be kind of crashy and the website can be pretty slow. But as we are reading Marvel titles, this is the easiest way to get your hands on this material. I will warn you that a number of the issues have been updated or changed in some way. So they don't always agree exactly with what we'll be reading. Jonah, how have you enjoyed using Marvel Digital Unlimited? I really do enjoy it. Uh, the user interface isn't exactly the best and it can be a little bit wonky at times when you're trying to search for specific things. But it really has a great library and... 
it has so many good filter options to help you narrow down what you want to read, where you want to start, how many issues you can go through for a specific character, a team, a villain, whoever you like and whoever you want to learn more about. It's really good for that. All of the pages always look nice and beautiful. It's good digital art. It's really easy to read. It's really easy to go through pages. It's also really simple to find something on a specific page if you're trying to make notes like we do. If you are able to afford it, I do recommend it. It is a pretty good app for what it does. I really love what you said about the pages looking crisp and clean because as a fan of comics, I often had to resort to scans growing up. Scans don't look anything like this. It's incredible to be able to zoom in and see the nuance and detail in the art. It's also nice to be able to zoom in and take a screen cap for my notes. That said, Comixology Unlimited, pretty much in the same category. I wouldn't really make any separate differential there. Number two, and this might be a convenient way for people who like to have physical copies of things, Marvel has released a number of lines of title collection. There is both the Epic Collection, if you're a trades kind of guy, and there's the Omnibus line, if you're a hardcovers kind of lady. Either one of them is more than acceptable. They are, for the most part, matched to the website, with the exception of the Omnibus line, which is intentionally the most pure, earliest form of the titles. Jonah, you're one of those young millennials that everyone's always complaining about. I mean, so am I. But as a person who does play with digital and physical media, is there any difference in reading between the omnibus and the digital versions for you? Not really content-wise. You know, you're reading a comic for the story. So as long as you're able to get that information, you're getting it. A lot of it comes down to your preferences and what you like aesthetically. If you don't mind just reading on your phone or on your computer, that's great and use digital copies. But if you love holding a comic and you love flipping through those pages and you just really like holding holding it and being able to just go at your own pace and easily just flip through everything, get a physical copy, find your local comic book store, see what they have available. If they don't have something you want, you can always ask for it and put in an order for it. And don't forget about Amazon. If you're poor and you're broke and you want to buy a book, there's Amazon. Absolutely recommend you should support your LCS. And while you're there, you should ask them to stock copies of The Amazing Kid Riot, the world's fastest, coolest gay Latino speedster, available at KidRiotComics.com and available on Comixology. I mean, whatever. It's up to you. Do what you're going to do. That said, a number of the things that we are talking about are not available in Omnibus Edition. Champions episodes are available in an epic collection as well as on Marvel Digital Unlimited. The Captain Britain issues are a little bit trickier and are only available in three hardcover editions. Everything Captain Britain prior to his adventures in Excalibur, as mentioned in the Captain Britain episodes, are available in three volumes. Volume 1, Birth of a Legend, Volume 2, Siege of Camelot, and then Volume 3 is the Alan Davis, Alan Moore, Jamie Delano, Captain Britain omnibus. Then we get to the classic X-Men. If you're going to read the classic X-Men stories, and you know, you can be a completionist. You're welcome to read them. I don't think that Jonah and I feel we're any richer for having read them, but if you're going to read them, unfortunately, it appears the only way currently to get your hands on most of this material is through a $125 X-Men Classic Omnibus. I don't necessarily recommend this volume for everybody. A number of the pages in this volume are simply covers, as after a while they did discontinue the changes to the story and the additional backup story. Also, a number of these pages are just side-by-side -side comparisons of some changes that were made. The backup stories are the only complete adventures available in this, and there's only about 44 8-12 page backup stories. They don't tell a consistent narrative, and it's really up to you if you want to pick these up. We also don't really recommend these stories, so 
If you really are desperate for it, you could probably get a number of these classic X-Men's for a dollar in dollar bins. You can check eBay, and that does bring me to the last one. A whole lot of this material is unfortunately only available in back-issue format. You can check eBay. You can check MyComicShop.com. Feel free to look on Midtown Comics. But we are talking about some back-issue material here. Marvel has gone out of their way to collect almost everything that you could possibly want in a trade or hardcover at some point. So even if it's not currently in print, a number of these things are available in a collected edition. And we hope that you guys do keep reading alongside us. This has been a really great couple of months. It's been a phenomenal adventure. And I've had so much fun getting to relearn what it is I love about the X-Men. I'm walking away from this realizing that I have always loved Wolverine with all my heart. I am walking away from this realizing that Jean Grey will forever be my favorite and i'm walking away from this hating the fuck out of the champions the champions is the worst fucking book i hate it i just want to punch the book i mean i have no problem with anybody who made it everybody is part of a team and there's an editorial person and there's a publishing person and the writer gets to have a say and the artist gets to have a say and it's just one of those things where i don't hate any one of these cooks but god damn it i hate this soup um i i can really only agree with your opinions on champions i'm not touching that with a 10-foot stick at any point but I really enjoyed, you know, even though I am younger and I'm only getting into it now and I don't have as many people do have as reading these comics when they're like kids and they're getting so excited about their favorite superheroes. It's really interesting to be able to look at these with an older lens and be able to critically analyze these different things that are going on in these characters' heads or what the writer is trying to say. I've really enjoyed what the X-Men has been about and the journey they're going on to becoming what they are today. I love a lot of these characters. And my biggest, really most amazing takeaway from this is that this project and me reading these comics only enhances and reaffirms my love for Kurt Wagner Nightcrawler. I'm not even kidding. I'm sitting here going, I know he's going to bring this back to Nightcrawler. I know he's going to bring this back to Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler has truly been one of the standout characters in early X-Men. Nightcrawler and Storm really carry this title It is these two forces that propel the narrative forward. Banshee doesn't get lines. Every line Colossus gets is obnoxious. Duh, I'm sad. Duh, sad. Tractor. It's unbelievable. Sunfire is a (laughs) hothead, as we have made the joke far too many times. That is my joke. That is copywritten material. That is true. You will hear from my lawyer. It is peak humor. Although I do believe Kyle made the same joke over in Champions about Ghost Rider. And then I believe I made that joke about Equinox over in Marvel Team Up. I do believe that this is officially the moratorium on the use of the phrase hothead to describe any character who wields fire. Yes, I think at this point we can lay that joke to rest. And I think it's time to lay this episode to rest. Jonah, as always, you have been the world's best co-host and the world's cutest guy, if I may add. So, until you next grace our podcast, where can everybody find you online? If you would like to find me and interact with me and talk to me about the episodes or the comics, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah Rubino and at Jonah.Rubino, respectively. Nico, where can all your fans find you? Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm like Wolverine, I'm on way too many things right now. You can check out my amazing comic, Kid Riot, as well as its sister book, Capes and Boots, at KidRiotComics.com, where we've got some exciting things coming up. If you're a fan of my voice and you want to hear what it sounds like singing, you should check out my music project, Action Duo, at Facebook.com slash Action Duo, where I'm making throwback R&B with my buddy. 
And of course, if you want to look at selfies of me being silly and shirtless and at the gym a lot, you should check out Instagram where I am Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And Jonah, buddy, until we kick off things with our Merry Mutants in the new year, we'll see you guys soon. See ya, everybody.